encounters with Jesus Christ in John's Gospel. Last time we looked at John himself, the author of this book, uh, when he reminded us, and we, that means John, beheld his glory. And we're going to look this morning at another John, maybe just as famous, and that is John the Baptist. And in our reading, we came across him. And there is too much here to look at in one message. So I want us to concentrate on what John said about Jesus. That really is the thrust of what we have about John the Baptist here. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's witnessing to Jesus Christ. More about that in a moment. But I want us to look at a phrase that John uses twice in this chapter. Verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing at Jesus of Nazareth and he's saying, Look, there's the Lamb of God. And then he says it again in verse 35. Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 36. Behold the Lamb of God. Now John was Jesus' cousin. They were about the same age. And he was brought up in a priestly family. And when he was about 29 or 30 years old, is that the age of Nathan, our trainee pastor? He started his public ministry, not in the synagogue, but in the desert of Judea. If you've ever been to Israel, you will know that the desert of Judea is a pretty grim place. And yet John drew a huge crowd. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. And even though he preached a hard message, one of repentance, many believed. And as a result, John baptized them in the River Jordan. Hence, he was given the name John the Baptist. Now, what you've got in this account, unlike the other Gospels, is very little detail on how John met Jesus uh, John baptized Jesus, but there's not a lot here about that. The emphasis is on the effect that this encounter or encounters that John had with his cousin had on him. So John is first mentioned in verse 6, and he's mentioned as a witness. Hold on to that. And then... Uh, he is mentioned a little later. Uh, verse 19, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they don't know what to make of John. He hasn't got uh, a degree in theology. He hasn't been trained. And yet here he is preaching. And so they are concerned about this. And they send a delegation to find out about this strange man. And John uh, answers some of the questions of these religious leaders. That's the first day. We're given uh, three days here in the life of John the Baptist. So the first day he answers their questions. 
And what does he do in answering their questions? He bears witness to Jesus. And then, the second day, John bears witness to Jesus, to all the Jewish people that are around him. Behold the Lamb of God. And then on the third day, verse 35, the next day, that's the third day, John bears witness to Jesus, to his own followers. And as a result of that, two of his own disciples leave him and follow Jesus. So are you still with me? After three days, John has borne witness to Jesus, to the religious leaders who've come to test him, to the Jewish people who are listening to him, and to his own disciples who subsequently leave him and start following Jesus. Then in the rest of the chapter, we have three more days of Jesus calling his disciples. How many days does that make? Six days. Are you all with me? You're very quiet. I need to know that you're with me. Preaching isn't a one-way communication. Six days. And then, on the seventh day, we're in John chapter 2, which is called the third day in this account. So three days of John witnessing to Jesus, three days of Jesus calling his first disciples, and on the seventh day, the wedding at Cana, Jesus doing his first miracle. That's amazing. Because six days followed by a seventh day of blessing. That's how God created the world. Now what God is doing is the work of new creation. And there are six days followed by a seventh day of blessing. So... We're not interested in all those details this morning, but it's good to realize what we've got here. And what we're going to look at this morning is John's witness to Jesus. This is proof of his encounter with this unique person, behold, the Lamb of God. And the first thing I want to say is, behold, behold, look, John was pointing he wasn't pointing to himself. He was pointing to another. The word witness, we've already come across it. It's used about 14 times in John's Gospel. To witness is used about 33 times in John's Gospel. I'm a witness to Jesus Christ this morning. Every preacher, Andy, Nathan... We are witnesses to this wonderful person. We're not religious experts. We're witnesses. If you're a believer this morning, you are a witness to Jesus Christ. Isn't it ironic that the so-called religious leaders from Jerusalem, uh, they didn't know anything about witness they were just religious experts they were uh, just uh, 
dotting their I's and crossing their T's, they had no idea what it was to be a living witness to a person. A church that is not witnessing to Jesus Christ has no reason to exist. John was 29, 30 years old. He was young, wasn't he? He wasn't dressed in the normal way, even for the day that Jesus lived in. He was definitely not in a suit and tie. I think if John the Baptist was preaching here this morning, some of you might have not been happy about what he was wearing. But he was wearing the most important dress. He was clothed with humility. He's not talking about himself. Interesting, John, the author of the gospel, doesn't even refer to him as John the Baptist. He simply calls him John. It's as if the baptizing isn't important. It's the one he's witnessing to. He is not clothed in what people would normally regard as appropriate clothing for a preacher. But it doesn't matter. He's clothed with humility. And when we're clothed with humility, we are clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what our preachers need today? Oh, would to God that we stopped complaining about what we preachers were wearing and started praying that we would have the clothing of God's power. Witnessing. Uh, if you've got a Bible, look at the religious leaders coming to John. I just want you to look at them questioning him. I tried to bring it out in the reading. So here are these religious experts. They're concerned about this preacher. And so they ask their questions. And look at the way he turns the conversation around. Who are you? And he answers, I am not the Christ. And then they ask, are you Elijah? Because there were prophecies that Elijah would come back again. And John is a bit more short. I am not. So the first answer, I am not the Christ. Now he's a bit shorter. I am not. Are you the prophet? Moses prophesied that a greater prophet would come, uh, the Messiah. And his answer is even shorter. No. Can you see what he's doing? He's not interested in answering their questions. He's not interested in having a religious debate. And then what happens? When they actually ask him then, who are you? He gives a fuller answer. He quotes Old Testament scripture. He says, I'm the voice. I'm not the Messiah, but I'm the voice that is speaking of the Messiah. And he goes on, and we haven't got time to look at these verses this morning. He goes on to talk about Jesus Christ. Look, my friends, John isn't interested even in talking about himself when he's asked questions about himself. He's turning the conversation around towards Jesus Christ. Some of you are very good at doing that. I envy you how in an ordinary conversation you can just turn it around to the gospel. Remember Alistair Stewart? He had a wonderful gift in doing that. You know, this is what we are about as a church. It's lovely that we've got something like chill and chat. 
but we're not there, are we, just to have a discussion on the world. We want to turn the conversation towards Jesus Christ. And even in doing that, we're just a voice, a voice. John had nothing to say about himself because he was sent to talk about Jesus, says Wearsby. Jesus is the word. John was but a voice, and you cannot see a voice. I only want to be a voice this morning. The other gospel churches in this city, they are other voices. And you know what? We are speaking of the same person. And it's like a choir, isn't it? Or it should be like a choir. You've got different voices in a choir. You've got some bass voices. You've got some soprano voices. But put them together and you've got harmony. Isn't it wonderful today that there is a harmony of voices in this city uh, witnessing to Jesus Christ? And there are other voices up in the valleys, there are voices in West Wales, maybe smaller churches, but still it's talking about the same gospel. And then there are voices in other parts of the country. There are voices in Marseille where Maged is, and they are speaking in a different language, and yet in another sense, it's the same language, is it not? It's the language of grace, drawing attention to Jesus Christ. And I can see Serene sitting there Serene from India and the mission we were involved in in India, I heard from Sundarao last few days. There is that swelling of voices in Andhra Pradesh. There are voices, I see people from other nationalities here. My friends, this is a glorious theme that we are about this morning in witnessing to Jesus Christ. And the church today is bigger in the world than it's ever been. It might not be in the West, but in the world it is. And I say it's a privilege to bear witness to such a wonderful person. Aren't you glad that you're a Christian this morning? My friends, we've got something to say. Once churches forget to bear witness concerning Jesus Christ, there's no point that they continue to exist. That's the reason why many chapels have become nightclubs and other places. Isn't it sad seeing them knock down the chapel where I was brought up in? It's a housing estate now. It's sad, but if they're no longer bearing witness to Jesus Christ, there's no point having even the loveliest of buildings. Jesus, the name, high over all. It's never stopped, has it? The voice, the voices witnessing to Jesus Christ. Ever since John the Baptist stood on the banks of Jordan, ever since the church was founded, even in the darkest of periods, there still has been a voice, there's still been a witness, and we are part of that long lineage. It's a bit like Witchet Road, isn't it? There is change in Witchet Road all the time. I cannot keep up with all the different eateries in Witchet Road. Even Masqueraise, which we thought of as something that was going to be there forever, is no longer with us. But the witness of this church is still here, over a hundred years. And what will continue the witness of this church is that we carry on saying, behold, behold, 
the Lamb. So behold, look, and then the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. I hadn't realised this in the Latin is Agnus Dei, Agnus Dei. And the people who heard John, maybe you're not familiar with the phrase Lamb of God. There is a band called Lamb of God, but maybe you're not familiar with the phrase. John's hearers would have been very familiar with it. They would have been steeped in the idea of a lamb. Now, what is that referring to? I know in Wales we've got more sheep than people, so, so we're familiar uh, with lambs. But for the Jewish people, a lamb was very, very significant. The, the greatest significance of a lamb for them was the Passover lamb. They would have been reminded of the nights that they were delivered from Egypt under the leadership of Moses, how the angel of death came upon the houses of the Egyptians and uh, the Israelites. And yet the Israelites were saved from death. How were they saved? By the blood of the lamb. So they slayed an innocent lamb and they put the blood of that lamb on their doorposts. So when the angel of death came upon the houses, when the angel saw the blood, it passed them by, it passed them over. And that would have been something very significant for these people. So when John is pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the lamb of God, this is the Passover lamb, this is the one that will save you from death, from God's wrath, and since the dispensation of Moses, the lambs would have been slain every day, twice a day, in the temple, morning and evening. Lambs would have been slaughtered. Blood would have been poured. What was God doing to his people? He was giving them an object lesson. He was driving it into their minds and hearts that without shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. These people would have been programmed, if I can put it like that, in terms of the language of a sacrificial lamb. And maybe one of the loveliest passages is Isaiah 53, the prophet seeing dimly the coming of the Messiah, a man of sorrows, and seeing him as a lamb. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone turning his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the lamb, the iniquity of us all. When Jesus was crucified he was led like a lamb to the slaughter he did not open his mouth he was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy and then even before the Passover and Moses you had Abraham and Isaac you know the account Abraham being told by God to offer his son as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah and as they're carrying the wood and the other implements for the sacrifice up the mountain Isaac asks his father Father, where's the lamb? Every other time we've sacrificed, we've had a lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham's question, my son, God will provide the lamb. God will look to himself for the lamb. And Abraham did not have to offer his son Isaac because God had provided the lamb. And now, <laughs> after years, centuries, several thousands of years of waiting the lamb himself has come. How can the blood of an animal cleanse from sin? It can't. Not all the blood of beasts. That was the hymn I thought I'd chosen. 
as the third hymn. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain can give this guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. Uh, in one sense, the whole of the Old Testament can be summed up by the question of Isaac to his father. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? The lamb, the Passover lamb. Yes, it's a symbol, but it can't really do anything to our sin. All the lambs that were slain in the temple, again, they are just the shadows. Where's the substance? Where's the lamb? And after 400 years of silence, after the last prophet uttered his word from God, there was 400 years of absolute silence. I'm sure the people of God had given up hope. And then God sends John the last of the prophets, the greatest of the prophets, because he was preparing the way for the Messiah. And John stands at the banks of Jordan in the wilderness, and he points to his cousin Jesus of Nazareth and says, here he is. What you've been waiting for, for thousands of years, has come. What God had planned from eternity has come into time. There's the lamb. There's the answer. Did you hear one of the Queen's Christmas messages a few years ago? I, I was blown over because she spoke these words. She quoted these words. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, well, it sort of is now, <laughs> God would have sent us an economist. But there is a greater need. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. So God has sent a saviour. Behold, our only business as a church is to witness to Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the lamb, the saviour who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know what a witness is? Uh, when I was a pupil in uh, Cumrumney in Bargoid, I did history, and we were guinea pigs. Uh, O-levels were going out, and GCSEs were coming in, and we were guinea pigs. So we never got taught what actually happened in history. We just got taught these different issues. So one of them was Trosseda Chosp, uh, Crime and Punishment. And as part of the course, we had a trip to the courthouse in Merthyr. I'd never been to a courthouse before. I hope I will never go to a courthouse again. And in this courthouse, it was amazing. The defence and the prosecution, the way they were arguing their cases, they were absolutely brilliant. They were so convincing. When you heard the prosecution, you thought the person... Uh, in the dock was awful, must be guilty. But then the defence got on his feet and you think, no, no, he's innocent. They were arguing their case. They were advocates. 
An advocate is a person with a brilliant mind, like those two lawyers who can win in arguments. We're not advocates for Jesus Christ. Thank God I can't win an argument. We're witnesses. Do you know what the difference is between a witness and an advocate? Think of a witness in court, an eyewitness. A witness may not be as intelligent as the lawyers, but a witness was a person who was there. Uh, one of my favorite books of the 1904-05 revival is the one with the title, I Was There. <laughs> I may not be a good writer, but I was there. <laughs> I'm a living witness. And that's what John was. In spite of his rough dress, he had encountered Jesus. He was a witness. And that's what many of us here this morning are. We're witnesses to what Jesus Christ has done. We're not here to try and win arguments with people. We're here to say, look what the Lord has done for me. I'm not standing on this pulpit above you. Yes, I am above you. If you're, not, if you're in the gallery, I'm not above you. But I'm not here to judge you. I'm, I'm just a sinner like you. But my friends... I have found a saviour in Jesus Christ. I'm bearing witness to him. And I found that when I went to Jesus as I was, I turned from my sin, but I went to Jesus as I was, and I trusted in him, just like in the Old Testament, the people would lay their sins on the Lamb. I laid my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, and he took them away. His blood cleansed me from my sin. What I couldn't do, he did by his death. And I'm a witness to that. Have you come to believe in Jesus Christ? Are you a witness? Are you a witness? Uh, I was reminded of this very vividly a few days ago. I was parking uh, in a certain town and there's a time limit of 30 minutes in the car park. And you can park for free for 30 minutes. So I parked my car and then I went to the coffee shop and I started reading. And it wasn't just 30 minutes that had gone. It was about an hour. And as I was going back to my car, I could see a traffic officer. And they were about to go. They had photographed my car. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I pleaded with them. And they looked and they said, all right. Just this once, I let you off. And then a few days later, I got into my house and a letter had arrived. And it was a speeding fine on another occasion. You see, it was something that had happened to me. I'm bearing witness to it. And the reason why I'm mentioning it here this morning is this. Maybe I was able to persuade that traffic officer, but I couldn't argue with a speed camera. If the law has been broken, you've got to pay the debts. You've got to pay the fine. And it's like that with us and God. Why do we need a saviour? Why do we need to talk this morning about Jesus, the Lamb of God? Why am I, as it were, wallowing in the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, there's a very good answer for that. It's because we've all broken the law of God. 
and there's a penalty to be paid. And we can't put on uh, uh, a smiley face and uh, uh, look uh, uh, in a pitiable way and try to say, but I didn't mean it. The law has got to be honoured. God is just. God cannot just brush sin under the carpet. God must punish sin. God is just. He's not like uh, some of us losing our tempers. He's a God who hates sin and he has got to punish. That's why there is hell. That's why man is appointed once to die and after that the judgments. That's why our greatest need is to be saved from sin, from God's judgments. And I'm bearing witness with John this morning that Jesus Christ saves. Has he saved you? Nobody's been saved here. Has anybody been saved here this morning? Yes. We, amen indeed, brother. We've got somebody to bear witness to. If you're not saved here this morning, listen, many of us have believed in Jesus, still believe in him, and we find in him one who has saved us from sin and has given us a hope, a hope for eternity. And we want you, we want you to come. Uh, let me just quote that hymn. I'm coming to a conclusion not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give this guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. But Christ, that's the answer, but Christ. Aren't you glad of the but gods in the Bible? But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sin away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. So what do you do? I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless lamb of God. Why do you carry your burden any longer. If Jesus Christ has come to take away sin, why are you still carrying it? Go to him. Go to him. Don't go to the law. The law will tell you to run to Jesus. If I could plead with that traffic officer to be merciful to me, how much more merciful is Jesus Christ this morning? Uh, let me just finish with this. Uh, some of you may wonder, uh, takes away the sin of the world. Does that mean that everybody will be saved? No, what it says is this. When Abraham offered Isaac, it was one lamb for one person. By the time, there's a development here, you see. By the time of the Passover, it was one lamb for a nation. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, finally came. It was one lamb sufficient for the whole universe. It doesn't mean that everybody will be saved, but it does mean that there is enough sufficiency in the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse an infinite number of people. What's stopping you? What's stopping you from coming to Jesus Christ this morning? May we bear witness to him, uh, even if all we can say is, come, come and hear, <laughs> come, come to the fireworks evening, come, come to the Sunday morning services, come to the chill and chat, be because 
we're not just religious. No, we're not religious people. We're not religious people, are we? We don't want to be relig- religious people. We want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Someone who has done something for us. And he can do the same for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, praise be his name, my sin, your sin, the sin of whoever believes in him. For his name's sake. Let's sing now. Come, ye sinners. It's been modernized as well. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. What a combination. He is able, he is willing. Come, ye sinners, doubt no more. Number 474.
Father in heaven, may this be our motto as a church, none but Jesus. And we just thank Thee that we have found him to be one who saves indeed. And we just pray, O oh God, if there be any here this morning who are still strangers to this grace, that thou will just open their eyes and cause them to venture wholly on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. <laughs>